Live from Lambert Park, USA, I'm Tavis Smiley, and you're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. So glad to see you and me back in stride again. Our phone number, 1-800-920-1580. 1-800-920-1580. All of our socials can be found at KBLA 1580. That's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Everything at KBLA 1580. Let me ask you, uh, invite you, I should say, also to download our app at KBLA 1580. Download the app and take us with you anywhere in the world. And listen to us in real time, but only by downloading the app right now at KBLA 1580. Should you miss us any day in real time, check out the podcast of our program by going to the app, the website, Anchor, Spotify, Apple, so many places to get the podcast of this program and listen at your leisure. Should you miss us any day in real time, but I am delighted to have you along live with us today for the next three hours. You can also watch the live stream of this program by tapping the KBLA TV icon on our app or by going to our YouTube channel. Let me also invite you to follow me on Facebook and Instagram at The Real Tavis Smiley and get Twitter updates at Tavis Smiley. Another good show on tap for you today. In our second hour, why does black consciousness pose such a threat to racist power struggles uh, in the struggle for dignity and freedom? How do black folk use the critical powers of creativity to dismantle racism and imagine a world where black existence is possible. A conversation with one of the great thinkers of our time, professor uh, and head of the philosophy department at UConn, Dr. Lewis Gordon, joins us today in hour two. In our third hour, two conversations. I know you want to leave me, but I refuse to let you go. If I have to beg, plead for your sympathy, I don't. We will commence hour three in conversation with actor Marcus Paul James, one of the stars of the smash hit Broadway musical, Ain't Too Proud to Beg, The Life and Times of the Temptations. The musical follows the Temptations' extraordinary journey from the streets of Detroit to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with their signature dance moves and silky smooth harmonies. They rose to the top of the charts, creating an amazing 42 top 10 hits with 14 reaching number one. I ain't mad at the Timps. Actor Marcus Paul James joins us on the top side of our three. On the B side of our three. Songwriter and founder of the classic R&B group Club Nouveau, Jay King joins us on the backside of our three ahead of this weekend's huge KBLA block party for LA Mayor-elect Karen Bass, where Club Nouveau will be performing along with Wapale and Brian McKnight. Jay King of Club Nouveau joins us on the B side of our three. But in this first hour today, a conversation about the recent rise in crime, particularly gun violence, 
and why this current spike isn't necessarily a mystery. Moreover, our guest in this hour believes that these short-term trends can sometimes distract us from the question of how American cities got to this point in the first place and how they can move toward a sustained period of low violence. Patrick Sharkey is a professor of sociology and public affairs at the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. I am pleased to welcome him to this program. Professor Sharkey, how are you today, sir? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. It's good to have you on. Thank you for the time. Glad we got an hour. A lot to talk about in this hour. Um, I, when I said a moment ago that uh, this uh, recent crime spike is no mystery, um, give me uh, the backstory for why we should not be surprised in this particular moment that we're seeing this uh, spike in crime, and we'll jump from there, sir. Yeah, so I think about trends and violence in, in two ways. One, there's there's what goes on you know, in particular places at a particular time, and that can be affected by a whole bunch of, of factors that might be unique to that moment in time, that might be unique to that city. And so, you know, we can come up with a whole bunch of uh, explanations for what's happened over the past few years. So that's the first part of the conversation. That's what most people focus on, right? But the bigger story, the longer-term story here, is why are American neighborhoods so vulnerable to this kind of sharp rise in, in violence? Why is it that the same neighborhoods over the past 50, 60 years longer have been the neighborhoods where when a, a rise in violence hits, mm -hmm. it hits in these places, it doesn't hit in these other neighborhoods? And so that's the broader story. And, and you know, the, the short version is we've created this, this uh, system of extreme inequality in America's urban areas that has left neighborhoods vulnerable to this kind of violence. Mm. That's why I say, you know, what, what we're seeing over the past few years is, is a change. There's definitely been a shift, but it's part of this longer-term pattern. Mm. Uh, I see where we're headed in this hour, and I'm excited to have Dr. Patrick Sharkey on, and I can uh, tell you now I'm going to need every uh, minute in this hour to unpack um, what he's already laid out. And those are two fundamental questions that we need to wrestle with, particularly for those of us who happen to be persons of color who find ourselves all too often being the the residents in these particular neighborhoods. You heard him say just a moment ago uh, two things. One, why are neighborhoods in this country so vulnerable to these upticks in crime? And secondly, why are the same neighborhoods always impacted by these upticks in crime? A great deal to talk about even beyond those two questions. Just getting started in this hour with Dr. Patrick Sharkey as we talk about the uh, crime spike uh, and why what we're experiencing right now should not be a mystery to all of us. You're listening to KBLA Talk. Phone number 1-800-920-1580, 1-800-920-1580. Talking in this hour about this recent spike in crime and why we should not be surprised by it. Uh, Dr. Sharkey's already laid the foundation here, and I want to just build on that. He raised two powerful questions moments ago. One why um, American neighborhoods, certain American neighborhoods, to be more exacting, uh, are always subject to these upticks in crime, number one. Number two, why is it that they're the same neighborhoods all the time? Let's jump from there, Dr. Sharkey. Let's take the first question first. Why are certain American neighborhoods always so vulnerable to these upticks in crime, sir? Well, we got to go back to the 1960s, really. And what Let's happened in the go. 1960s, yeah, so... so Urban economy started to change, okay? Manufacturing, manufacturing jobs started to disappear. At the same time, the federal government invested in suburbanization, but they made those investments for white people, okay? Mm -hmm. I want to be very explicit. These were race-specific investments that subsidized 
white outmigration of central cities. Okay, so as the population started to leave central cities and political influence started to move out to suburban areas, uh, federal government's uh, uh, commitment to cities in terms of budget dollars started to dwindle. This is when poverty started to become concentrated in the neighborhoods left behind, neighborhoods that had lost jobs, neighborhoods that had lost political influence, neighborhoods that had lost resources from state and federal governments. When that happened, when poverty started to become concentrated, instead of investing in those neighborhoods, instead of making the same commitment to those neighborhoods, and let's name them, these are low-income communities of color, okay? Mm -hmm. Instead of making an investment to, to bolster those neighborhoods, the federal government and state governments abandoned those communities and instead began to invest in the institutions of punishment. By that, I mean the police and the prison. The response became, okay, we're going to leave those neighborhoods on their own. And this was explicit. This is, you know, these are in, in uh, documents uh, in, from the Nixon administration. We're going to go into a period of benign neglect, they called it. Mm-hmm. We're going to leave those communities on their own, not deal with those problems. Instead, we're going to invest in the police and the prison. And there have been fluctuations since then. But that policy regime, which I, I refer to as abandonment and punishment, has basically remained intact in the 60 years since. And it's left communities vulnerable to every rise in violence that happens. It's because of disinvestment. It's not an accident. Mm. Um, I hear your issue um, that it's disinvestment, <clears throat> excuse me, and not an accident. Uh, I'm not naive in asking this question, um, but uh, what did these communities do to warrant uh, being abandoned and put upon in, in this way? Well, you know, so I, I didn't live through this period. I've just read the history. But, you know, the, if, if you read the histories of the 1960s, it's, it's a decade where for a good stretch of, of that decade, there, there were efforts. There was a war on poverty. There was a, a, a movement for civil rights. There, there was a, a real effort to kind of deal with the fundamental injustice that was happening, that was creating uh, all of the uh, the unrest, the anger, the resentment uh, that was that was being expressed in uprisings throughout the 1960s. Okay, so there was an effort to to deal with it. That effort was abandoned toward the end of the decade, and this started. You can see it in the the speeches of Lyndon Johnson, but in other uh, in other uh, political representatives, there became this movement to explain what was happening, not as a product of injustice and inequality but rather as a product of lawlessness, as a product of disorder. Uh, and that narrative, that idea that the, all of the problems that came to be seen as a crisis in the 1960s, the urban crisis of, of the decades, uh, that came to be explained as, as a, a, a product of lawlessness, disorder, and that led to this response of saying, okay, we're not going to try to deal with this anymore. Instead, we're going we're gonna to really invest in the police. We're instead going to invest in this regime of mass incarceration. Okay. Uh, and that's what happened. That, that notion of benign neglect, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an arresting phrase um, that uh, the Nixon administration used, uh, that there would be benign neglect of these particular communities of color. Um, so it's, it's one thing for Nixon to, to advance that particular narrative. It's another thing to ask Dr. Sharkey why, to your mind, uh, that narrative has endured all these years. Again, presidents, you know, change directions all the time. Uh, look at look at what Donald Trump was doing and the direction he was taking us in. Look how Joe Biden had to do a U-turn in that regard. Why, no matter who has been in the White House, has that narrative existed and survived all these years, 60 years later? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So I'm going to give you an answer that's a little bit counterintuitive. Okay. But I, more and more I've come to think this is the right answer. It's cheaper to do it this way. Mm. Um, and so, you know, people look at our our system of mass incarceration and, and intensive policing, and they think, oh, we're spending all this money on, on this system of punishment. The truth is, this is a system that targets individuals. Uh, and so it's it's expensive for every one of those individuals who gets caught up in, in the uh, legal system. But for the nation as a whole, this is a whole lot cheaper than actually making the types of investments that can bolster up communities, that can give people economic opportunities, that can create uh, great schools and great learning environments, even in places that have high levels of, of poverty. So it's actually a much, and, and this argument is, is developed in former student of mine, Adana Usmani, who has written about this brilliantly in my mind, and has made the case that, no, it's actually not more expensive to lock people up because you're doing it one by one. It's a lot more expensive to actually make the investments that could give people opportunities. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure <clears throat> that I saw that answer coming, but I, I receive it and I accepted that. It, um, it's sad, though. I mean, it... it <laughs> It um, it 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 messes with the with the mind uh, to consider that these same neighborhoods have been vulnerable for 60 years uh, and that narrative of benign neglect uh, and abandonment has endured for all these decades, primarily in a word, because it is cheaper. It's just cheaper. Um, The lives of these uh, precious fellow citizens seems not to matter. Uh, And so because it's cheaper. Um, this is the path that we've chosen and the path that we remained on for all these decades now, which raises, though, to my mind, Professor Sharkey, this particular question. Uh, Dr. King once famously said, and he's been quoted by many people since then, including yours truly, that budgets are moral documents. Budgets are moral documents. I don't care what you say. Show me your budget and I can tell very simply and very quickly what your priorities are, who and what matters to you, because your budget is a moral document. Uh, If King is right about that, and I suspect that he is, and our option, our choice has been to go the cheap route, what does that say about our democracy? I think that's exactly right. And the truth is, we have so much evidence that investments in community organizations, in residents, cleaning up abandoned lots, greening abandoned lots, providing high-quality after-school programs, providing summer jobs, providing better street lighting, you know, very basic investments that most neighborhoods across the country take for granted, reduce violence and have an enormous impact on violence. And and that comes from the most rigorous evidence you could generate. Okay. Mm -hmm. This comes from randomized control trials. Um, We have not, we as a nation have not made the investments uh, that we know work to control violence that we know can, can actually not only reduce violence, but also create stronger neighborhoods. We haven't made those investments. And, and there's a great example. Just, you know, just today, the, so the Biden administration has been the first administration to actually put some dollars into uh, community approaches uh, against violence. You know, I just read today uh, in a newsletter, the, the Trace, great, great news organization that follows these stories very closely. I read today that that, my, that initiative has ended today. That money has dried up uh, as of today. And it just reflects the fact that this came with great fanfare, you know, and it was a really important statement that they were going to invest in community organizations. But it's a temporary, short-lived, piecemeal investment. And when you contrast that to the investment 
that cities make in their police departments, that, that states make in their legal systems over time, uh, it's just such a sharp contrast and it reveals where the priorities are. It really does. Mm. The, the, the problem with this thinking, um, and by, by this thinking, I mean that we can contain crime over there. We can contain crime in those neighborhoods. I mean, it is true, as you've already established, uh, that too many uh, neighborhoods in this country are vulnerable to these upticks in violent crime. You've established already, <clears throat> and we'll get more into this in a moment, that it's the same neighborhoods that keep being vulnerable to these upticks in violent crime. But one of the reasons to my mind, you're the expert here, I'm just a lowly talk show host, but one of the reasons to my mind that this narrative has existed for 60 years is because people have bought into this notion that crime can be contained. If we keep it over there and away from us, we don't have to worry about it. And yet, you know, as an expert researcher and professor at Princeton, that crime creeps, crime creeps. And that's what we saw a couple of years ago when with the advent of these smash and grabs during the holiday season. Um, crime creeps here in Los Angeles, where this uh, radio station is flagshipped, heard across the nation, but flagshipped, of course, here in L.A. Uh, the whole country saw the story of uh, Jackie Avon, uh, the wife uh, of one of the uh, major uh, music industry uh, executives, Clarence Avon. I've known them, knew them for years. Clarence, of course, is still living, but I've known the Avons for years, and everybody was just, just uh, gobsmacked when the wife of this record executive, former president of Motown, was murdered in her home in one of the most exclusive uh, states uh, in the city of Los Angeles. And then, you know, around that same time in Hancock Park, an ex a very nice neighborhood in this in this city, uh, a mother and her child pushing her child in a, in a, in a stroller. They were uh, you know, accosted in the middle of the street, in the middle of uh, it, 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 at, at daylight, middle of the day. And so these are stories that don't just exist in L.A. These are stories that exist all across the country. My point here, you obviously take it, is that crime creeps. So what's wrong with this notion of thinking that we can contain crime, contain it in certain spaces? Yeah, th that's exactly right. And, and, you know, when you say that crime creeps, it, like we, we can model that, you know, in the sense that when there are more guns circulating in space, it changes everyone's behavior. It changes everyone's behavior in that system. It makes everyone more wary. It makes people more likely to, you know, to, to be or, or less willing to venture out into public spaces, to leave their kids out in a park to play on their own, to go to a library, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. So this starts a process when people start to retreat from public space and, and, you know, spend more time at home and they're fearful of going out. That then changes the dynamics in public space and, and, and reinforces who's actually out there, uh, who's out there looking out over public space, who's occupying public space. So this cycle of, you know, violence rises, people retreat to their homes, violence starts rising more, and then we turn back to the police. This destroys communities. It destroys entire cities. You know, cities cities are the basic feature of city life is that it's about public space. It's about shared space and over and above private space. And so that core feature of city life is just completely undermined when cities carry the threat of violence. So, you know, your example just reveals this larger pattern where when we let violence start to rise, 
it undermines city life in that extent to every community across cities. I got two or three things on my mind right now that I want to ask and follow up, but I'm looking at my clock and I see we've got news, traffic, and sports in about uh, 60 seconds. So let me just tee up where I want to go on the other side and we'll continue our conversation sure. with, with Princeton's Dr. Patrick Sharkey, an expert on this issue of crime spikes and why we should not be surprised. This is not a mystery. This is no great mystery here. Uh, and we're unpacking that in this hour. When we come forward, though, I want to come back to this notion of guns. It is impossible uh, to talk about violent crime in this country without having a conversation about guns. And yet it is, to, I've said so often in my work and witness that to my mind, racism may very well be the most intractable issue in this country. And I, I don't want to back off of that point, that racism may be the most intractable issue in this country. But the longer I live, the more I'm rethinking that frame and whether or not guns ought to be at the top of the list in this country. This issue of guns is an intractable political problem, uh, and I want to get uh, uh, Professor Sharkey's take on why and what, in fact, he thinks we ought to do about guns, because again, there, there is no increase in violent crime if there is no increase in access to guns. We're going to have to talk about that, uh, and we haven't really uh, addressed that second question that he raised earlier on. We uh, This is a very smart audience, and an audience uh, uh, packed with people of color, uh, African Americans and beyond, and so I think they've already figured this out, but it is that question that vexes all of us. Why, uh, one, are certain communities so vulnerable to these upticks in violent crime? But secondly, and more expressly, why is it that it's the same neighborhoods all the time? It, that crime doesn't move. It stays in the same spaces. And that's worth unpacking as well. We'll do all that and more when we come forward after news, traffic and sports with Dr. Patrick Sharkey of Princeton on KBLA Talk 15. Less BS per broadcast. Fewer microaggressions per megawatt. KBLA Talk 1580. I'm Tavis Smiley. Glad to have you with us on KBLA Talk 1580. Our phone number 1-800-920-1580, 1-800-920-1580. We are in our one today. Great show lined up for you today. And uh, we kicked it off with a great conversation with Princeton's Dr. Patrick Sharkey, an expert on crime trends in this country, sociologist, in fact, professor of sociology and public affairs at the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs, a leading scholar on urban crime. And I'm delighted to have him in conversation this hour about these crime spikes and why uh, certain neighborhoods in this country are always vulnerable uh, to these increases, these upticks in crime, and why they tend to be the same neighborhoods. As I said before, news, traffic, and sports, Dr. Sharkey, I don't think this audience is going to be surprised uh, at the answer you're about to give me, but let me ask anyway, why, uh, beyond the fact that certain neighborhoods are always vulnerable, why is it that they are always the same neighborhoods? Yeah, I think the answer is that it's not about the people, it's about the communities, what happens in those communities. And here's what I mean. Mm -hmm. There is, there's actually really fascinating evidence going way back where uh, researchers were studying which neighborhoods in Chicago were the most violent. And what they found is that the same neighborhoods, even as like the population was shifting, new ethnic groups were moving into the neighborhoods, the population was turning over entirely, the violence persisted in the same community. So they asked why, and that was the basis for kind of 80 subsequent years of research on this question. What they found, and what's still kind of the dominant explanation here, is that when communities have, have concentrated poverty in the U.S., that then leads to disinvestment. Uh, and what that means is that the schools start to function a little bit worse. They're not maintained as well. Public housing developments might not get the maintenance they need, so locks are not maintained. People start to feel less secure start to stay inside more. Parks change. The environment within public parks starts to change. So people, you know, caregivers aren't using them with their kids. They start to, to uh, uh, keep away from the parks. 
a different segment of the population starts to use the parks for their own purposes. Same with libraries, same with other institutions, community centers, and so forth. These sets of processes, which happen when you have the common, it's not just poverty, it's the disinvestment that comes when you have concentrated poverty. They mean, these changes mean that people aren't talking to each other. They're not looking out over public space. If you think about that neighbor, you know, everybody's got that neighbor who just looks out on their stoop or, or out their window, making sure everybody's okay, looking out for, you know, their neighbor's kids and so forth. When there's concentrated poverty, when there's disinvestment, that's less likely to happen. Residents are less likely to know each other, to work together, to step in if, if there's some kids causing trouble uh, on the corner or in the park. Uh, and through all of these processes, when you have concentrated poverty and disinvestment, it makes a neighborhood more vulnerable to violence. And we can show that. We can show that it doesn't matter who lives there. It doesn't matter the racial or ethnic group. It doesn't matter the, you know, the occupations that people have. That's not that's not what matters. What matters is whether poverty is concentrated and the types of investment and disinvestments that are made in that community. Speaking of disinvestment, as you were talking, I was thinking in my mind right quick of who and how many Democratic presidents we've had over that 60 year period. And so we start with just a little further back. We start with Kennedy, uh, Democrat. We go to Johnson, Democrat. Then Nixon shows up. Uh, we eventually end up with, uh, who Jimmy Carter is president. Uh, and then we end up with, uh, Bill Clinton is president. We end up with Barack Obama's president. Now we've got Joe Biden's president. That's just a quick cursory recall. I may have missed somebody in there, but that you, you take my point. My point simply is that over this 60 year period, they haven't all been Republican presidents. So they haven't all had to necessarily adopt that Nixonian narrative of benign neglect of these particular communities. What do we know? What's the research tell us about whether or not this disinvestment, this, this disinvestment in these communities over that period, whether that pattern has ever been interrupted? Does that make sense? Yep, it does. And, and there have been uh, investments made at, at particular points in time that I think haven't gotten the credit they deserve. For instance, the Recovery Act mm -hmm. uh, in the Obama administration you know, I was very worried when just at the scale of foreclosures, you know, this is a recipe for violence to rise when there's when neighborhoods are emptying out, uh, when they're abandoned homes uh, and, and people are trying to get out of, of a community. That's a recipe for violence to rise. It didn't happen mm -hmm. uh, back in 2008, 2009. My you know, th this is hard to demonstrate empirically, but but my my uh feeling is really that the investment, $800 billion that was spent in the Recovery Act, uh, propped up neighborhoods and kept them from falling apart. Uh, so, you know, the, the larger point is that there have been investments uh, to, to bolster communities, to create stronger neighborhoods. Those investments are, are what we need to reduce violence. The problem is just that they've been temporary. Yeah. They've been enacted at a point in time. They haven't been sustained. They haven't been implemented at a scale that can really create uh, transformative change and 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 really deal with the consequences of extreme inequality on a sustainable basis. Yeah. Uh, that's been the you know so I refer to it as durable policy. We need durable investments in central city neighborhoods, and we've never had those. Mm. Um, you mentioned Chicago a moment ago, and I want to circle back to that right quick before I move forward because um, there's a question I want to give you a chance to respond to as a, uh, as an academic, uh, I can certainly respond to it and address it and have, and probably will in the future in the political realm. But I want to ask you how you view this, um, given the, the lane that you run in 
And that is this notion of everybody always using Chicago as the litmus test. I mean, Chicago is always the example of urban crime. And let me be clear, Chicago has its issues, no doubt about that. But if for whatever reason, again, I'm not no, no naivete here. Uh, I want to hear your take on it. But for, for whatever reason, Chicago is always the favorite choice of, of folk, particularly on the right, when they want to make an example about crime and urban crime and how bad off America is and Etc. 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 Chicago is always uh, Exhibit A. Uh, I love Chicago. My friends know it's one of my favorite American cities. Um, any excuse to go to Chicago, I'm there. Uh, maybe not this time of year, but but it's one of my favorite cities uh, in the nation. And yet, it's always used as the barometer, as sort of the litmus test, as again Exhibit A when we talk about crime. It ain't the only city going through what it's going through, but what do you make of the politics specifically of why they always choose Chicago as their example? That's a great question. And, you know, I worry that I, I reify this because a lot of my research is based in Chicago and that's, that's mostly because, you know, my, my mentors, my, uh, the people who I trained under in grad school uh, were at Chicago and gathered all their data in Chicago but you're exactly right. It kind of stands in for the issue of violence in the U.S. Um, you know, part of that is definitely race. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Chicago has a large black population. Let's not beat around the bush. That's clearly a, a, a central reason why uh, Chicago stands in as kind of this this symbol, especially to the right. Um, but, the, you know, the, the, the other piece of it is Chicago has more murders than any other city in the country. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so it's for its size, it's nowhere near the most violent city in the country. So I'm not, you know, I want to be clear that there are lots of cities that have substantially higher rates of violence. Chicago is nowhere near the most violent city in the country, but it, in terms of just the raw number, it's got more than, than any other city. So that makes it kind of stand out. Um, so that's part of, of the reason. And, you know, I think this is not necessarily uh, always going to be the case. I mean, a couple decades ago, New York was the poster child for violence in the U.S. You know, when there were 2,200 murders every year in New York, everybody looked at that city as kind of the example of the failed American city. Well, you know, this year they're going to be around 400 mm -hmm. instead of 2,200. Uh, and so people don't think of New York in the same way that they did. Um, so, you know, I think that's part of an answer. But uh, yeah. again, I feel a little bit embarrassed talking about this because I, I reify it a little bit. I, I, I've done so much work in Chicago and I love that city as well. Nope, um, I, but it just seems to be the focus. Yeah, no, I appreciate your transparency about that. When we come forward, um, given the example you just gave now about New York uh, at its at its at its height, at, it, at its worst, I should say, uh, there were about twenty two hundred murders a year. This year, that number is down to four hundred. That's significant, a significant drop, which leads us into a conversation in a moment about what we've learned about what does in fact what can in fact control violent crime never mind the fact it happens in the same neighborhoods all the time uh, that are always vulnerable uh, to these upticks but uh, what can be done what do we what have we learned about what can be done to control violent crime uh, and um, you can't talk about Chicago as we were a moment ago without talking about guns we'll talk about that as well when we come forward with Dr. Patrick Sharkey on KBLA Talk 1580. Part out loud. loud. KBLA Talk 1580. Let's unpack a little bit more with Tavis Smiley. The conversation continues right now. Right now. Watching right my now. time here, which is getting a little, uh, a little tight on me, Dr. Sharkey. Uh, let me come right quick to this notion of guns. You can't talk about Chicago as we were a moment ago without talking about guns. And you can't talk about these 
crime spikes, these upticks, which, again, should be no mystery if you consider uh, the increase of guns and the access and availability to them. That's my read. What's your take on it? That's right. And, you know, it's not an accident that in 2020, more people bought guns in the U.S. than in any year in the history of the country before that. Uh, and then in 2021, even more people bought guns. So uh, it, it's it, what happened in, from 2020 to the present is not an overall increase in crime. It's an overall increase in gun crime. Very explicitly, that's yeah. the form of crime that rose. What, Gun violence rose. What, yeah. what, what's your research say to you, uh, if it does, uh, about why in the last couple of years we've seen this exponential growth in gun purchases? Well, you know, thinking back to 2020, we got a very, we meaning the whole country got a very clear message that you're on your own. Yeah. Okay. You know, public institutions shut down, schools shut down, libraries shut down, parks shut down in a lot of places workplaces shut down and and the political environment you just conveyed the very very clear message you're on your own to deal with this this is not the government's responsibility we're not going to help you you're dealing with this on your own when that happens when people feel isolated when they feel like the basic institutions of society are breaking down they retreat to their homes they retreat back to their their away from public spaces and in this case they went out and bought guns on a scale that we haven't seen in the country's history. Uh, and so, you know, it was this unique shock, uh, but it has persisted over time. And that's what has, has played a very big role in contributing to this rise in violence over the past couple of years. Yep. If uh, Rudy Giuliani were here and maybe even if Mike Bloomberg were here, they might argue that it was stop and frisk. Stop and frisk. That works so well in New York. They got that number down from its height of 2,200 murders a year to about 400 this year. Uh, I'm not buying that. But what what do we know about why New York is uh, is handling this issue much better than Chicago, say, or other places? Yeah, well, New York saw a big rise in violence in 2022, so they weren't immune to what happened then. But, Mm -hmm. you know, what I'd say is uh, in 2011, at the peak of stop and frisk, about 700,000 New Yorkers were being stopped by the police every year. And those are just the documented stops. Okay. Uh, when de Blasio came into office uh, and, and NYPD's policy of stop and frisk was declared unconstitutional, uh, the, the, the uh, police department changed their policy and the number of stops plummeted, went down to less than 50,000. Okay. So uh, the number of stops dropped by 90. 95 percent. This mm-hmm. this ended as a central tactic of the NYPD. And what happened? Violence fell to record lows in, mm-hmm. in the following years. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, had, it had never been lower. So Bloomberg or Giuliani would have a really hard time explaining mm-hmm. that when they ended stop, question and frisk, violence then fell to the lowest period on record in New York City. I love it. Our many moments with Dr. Patrick Sharkey when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Conversations that matter. matter. You're listening to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. Dr. Patrick Sharkey, I've got two minutes left in this conversation, which I've uh, enjoyed immensely. Thank you for uh, just uh, empowering us with information uh, that can help us uh, make better choices and hopefully live better lives. In these last two minutes, though, we are, whether they want to acknowledge it or not, already in a recession and everything I'm reading suggests and the Experts I'm talking to uh, confirmed for me they believe that this recession is about to get deeper. Um, what's your take then on these crime spikes as uh, the economy gets ever tighter? 
I'm worried about it. Uh, so what worries me is that uh, city budgets are going to to start to deal with some real um, problems uh, as federal dollars start to dwindle uh, and and state support starts to drop. Uh, I'm very worried about how cities will respond to this latest rise in violence, but really the more general question of you know how do how do cities provide the kinds of services and supports for residents that that stabilize neighborhoods and and that make neighborhoods less vulnerable to violence. Uh, I think it's going to be a challenge. I think resources have to come from state governments and continued resources have to come from the federal government uh, in 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 the coming years if we want to really deal uh, mm. with with this issue and make sure violence doesn't rise. And finally, in forty five seconds, um, what to your mind would have to happen? for policymakers, public policymakers, to advance good public policy that, uh, that uh, interrupts and, uh, and completely reframes the narrative we've been operating inside of for the last 60 years? Yeah, so there's one set of policies that, that can happen within cities where, you know, uh, programs that have police working with residents to solve local problems, police can be really effective mm-hmm. in reducing violence if they're working with residents. You know, we have really good evidence on that. Uh, and then basic investments in institutions like uh, summer jobs programs, after school programs make a huge difference uh, in reducing violence. But then there's a, a second set of investments that go beyond the city. You know, this is not a city problem. It's a, it's a problem of inequality. Uh, and so you need affordable housing programs that, that expand opportunities outside of central cities uh, for people to get access to areas of opportunity. As long as we have this degree of mm-hmm. segregation and inequality in America's urban areas, we're going to have continuously vulnerable neighborhoods. So that's the broader challenge yeah. that we have to deal with. Princeton sociology professor Dr. Patrick Sharkey uh, wrote a powerful piece uh, called The Crime Spike is Not a Mystery. Uh, The Crime Spike is no mystery to be exact. It's in the Atlantic magazine. You can find it. And uh, he's the author of a number of texts, including Uneasy Peace, The Great Crime Decline, The Renewal of City Life and the Next War on Violence. He is, as you can tell, an urban crime scholar. Dr. Sharkey, thanks for your insights. Sure, good to have you on this program. All the best to you and happy holidays. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. My great honor to have you. Hour two of Tavis Smiley as we talk about why black consciousness poses such a threat to racist power structures on KBLA Talk 15.